for the majority of human existence, our workday has remained largely the same. It's really only in the last 300 years or so that that workday or what we define as a workday has evolved into what we experienced during the Industrial Revolution and even the, the modern day work concept of an eight hour day. However, since COVID, massive amounts of workers were laid off. And as those opportunities are starting to come back, many are choosing to say no to these jobs in favor of other interests. They're calling it the great resignation, but should it be reframed as reclaiming our independence? That's the main topic for today's show as we discuss the future of work by looking to the past, present, and future. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Brumley. And on this show, we talk about tech, we talk about B2B marketing, the creator economy, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. In today's episode, and with July 4th coming up, we've got a state of independence report that's gathering insights on how independents are redefining the future of work. Also on the show, we're chatting with Patrick McFarland. He's the uh, Director of Marketing for ITS Logistics. He's breaking down how the marketing plan has shifted as the company has experienced their growth in the last recent years. Sue Reynolds of Carmine Media is also helping leaders, especially women, get better at being in powers of position that play to their strengths. But first, let's go ahead and dive into our first topic, which we just sort of mentioned in the intro of the show. But did you know that more than 95% of human history, people worked only 15 hours per week? It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that humans would start to work nearly that amount in a single day. And then flash forward to 1926, Henry Ford is creating the modern day workday that's lasted up until just recently. And Henry Ford actually created that modern eight hour workday where it was a balance of eight hours of work, eight hours of home time, and then eight hours of sleep in order to appease the, the growing number of people in the workforce that were working these 14 and 15 hour days during the industrial revolution. So that was seen as actually a really good thing up until just last year, 2020. Now, if we take a step back and we think back to just a little over a year ago, let's talk about everything that happened in one day. Travel from Europe was banned. Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, announced that they had COVID. And the NBA canceled their season all on March 11th. A lot of us thought that these changes would just be temporary. But then as the months started rolling in and, you know, you're, you're stuck in these extended lockdowns, supply chains started going a little cuckoo. They started going a little crazy. They were and still kind of are remain in disarray. Companies like Pinterest paid $90 million to cancel the construction on their new headquarters. Job reports started coming in with record high unemployment and getting the slightest scratchy throat. I, I don't know if any of you people experience this, but I know if I had the slightest hint of a scratchy throat during the initial COVID lockdowns, it sent you into kind of a full on like freak out panic mode. Now, you have to remember, as soon as you leave your house, too, you also have a new thing to remember as you leave your house. Not only is it your cell phone, your wallet, and your keys, but now you have a mask in tow. How quickly all of our habits change in just a short amount of time. But flash forward to this year, summer 2021, travel is starting to open up all around the world. Disney World, for God's sakes, is bringing back fireworks to the public for the first time tonight. And more good news, jobs are starting to come back. But workers on the flip side are starting to say no, no to the jobs that they had 
and the jobs that they currently have. And it's a really, really fascinating study to that's come out of courts. We were going to cite a couple different studies here, but the first one coming out of courts, it says that the American workers are quitting at the highest rate in decades. In October of 2020, 661,000 jobs were added to the workforce. Just overall, out of all the jobs that were lost in the, the recent months in 2020, in October, they added 661,000 jobs. But in April of 2021, about 649,000 retail workers alone quit their job. That's the highest single month rate since the Labor Department began tracking that figure 20 years ago. That is insane. So back in October, 661,000 jobs were added. But in April of 2021, 649 retail workers alone quit their job. It's it, it's an astounding stat. And now depending on the survey results that you read around the uh, really around a lot of media companies right now are starting to put these studies out, but 25 to 41% of current workers in the US are thinking of quitting their job with numbers even higher for younger workers. Or according to Microsoft, workers aged 18 to 25 54% are thinking of quitting their job in the near future with similar numbers to be found in the UK and Ireland. So it sort of brings us to our next question. Are we going through another historic shift in the workforce? Going into our next study, which is really a, a fascinating study on the independent workers. This comes from Contra, a professional community of independent workers surveyed 10,000 of their independents and found some really interesting insights where independents are classified as people who work for themselves while they can carve out their own career paths. They might be considered freelancers, gig workers, creators, et cetera. 86% of all the independents that were surveyed work less than 40 hours per week. And of that 40%, they work, and of that 40% work less than 30 hours per week. It's really, it's, it's kind of wild because I can't remember the last time I worked 30 hours in one week, but it sounds kind of nice. Independence, also from this study, independence don't freelance from, for the money. They're doing it for the autonomy and the freedom. This was a quote that was taken from multiple independents in this study. Next one on the list is one of the, the bigger reasons why they choose to, to stay independent is improvements to the industry that still need to be made, such as streamlined tools, software, collecting payments for, for jobs that you're working on, but also choosing who to work with and what to work on was another driving factor. And more importantly, what to say no to. We have a quote up on the screen that says, being independent doesn't always translate to a better income. Both paths can enable you to make money, but being independent gives you way more creative freedom. And you can make an argument that if you have more creative freedom, then you could take that extra step and do better work for better companies and have maybe aspire to that 30-hour work week, which sounds really dreamy right about now. The majority of folks who answered this study also cited a big reason of going independent is to work on projects they're passionate about. So seeking out those brands that they want to work with on an intimate level, uh, you know, certain charities that they're passionate about, that was also a big driver in this study. So the supply and demand of the workforce is now, what you can really tell is in the workers' 
favor. You can make the argument that the government sort of brought this on themselves, all of the problems that they're experiencing uh, compared to the rest of the world where they had uh, not a, necessarily an unemployment program, but what they had is a system where they paid companies to just keep employees on the payroll. So there wasn't this massive influx of people filing for unemployment, different unemployment systems that you see all across the country that caused a lot of the issues that the U.S. is facing right now, whereas other countries, they just paid companies just to keep people on payroll so that they didn't have to actually file for unemployment. So you, the government kind of brought a lot of this on themselves um, with a lot of the issues that we're seeing now where some workers, you know, they're making more sitting at home than if they were to go back to a job that they hate. And so if it's a job that they hate or if it's a job that's really frustrating and not bringing a lot of value to their lives, over the last year, they've really had that downtime. It is in a lot of careers, you've had that downtime in order to really think about the kind of work that you want to live, the, the, the kind of life you you want to live, and that and searching for that essential, you know, the or the eternal work-life balance if that does exist. So, but you can also make the case for workers also seeking meaningful work, which is that balance of work and life. So for the first time in more than a decade, workers have had that time to breathe. They can find a new skill set. They can seek work to make that career change. That's all happened over in the last year. And if you're seeing the, a quote on the screen, screen right now, this is one of my favorite freelancers that I like to follow on, on TikTok and on Instagram. She says that freelancing is more than the money. It's the travel flexibility and it's the adventure. It's about the pure and unadulterated freedom. You have to truly become the best version of yourself. There's nothing really standing in your way. And so that is really sort of the point of, I think, of, of why I started freelancing to begin with, is that I wanted to have the freedom to pick my clients. I wanted to have the freedom of to, to pick companies that I can work with, like Freight Waves, on a regular basis where I don't have to work for a boss that doesn't necessarily understand marketing or understand where I'm coming from in, in, in the goals that I want to try to go after and the things that I want to achieve. And it looks like out of all the people that were surveyed, more than 10,000 of them, that they are feeling a, a, a lot of those, those same things, especially over the last year as they've had time to sort of breathe and sort of jump into more of those skill sets. And another thing that I've noticed a lot is, is more of the courses that you're seeing online. People have the availability to learn anything that they want to online. So they're taking up crafts. They're taking up uh, different creative outlets that they can form a real business around and be much happier making things and creating things, which really goes back to the, the first part of the study that we mentioned that 95% of the population was used to a 15-hour work week. And the rest of that time, you could spend with family. You could spend doing creative projects. Now, you can make an argument of how that creative expression and how that creative expression evolved over 95% of our existence. But it's still one of those things where you you, you have to take a step back and, and, and look at some of the other examples that we're seeing, not just in, in the US, but we're seeing from a global scale where even countries in Europe, they take entire summers off from work. Whereas in the US, it's all you're almost seen as weaker if you're not working and burning the midnight oil and, and that really that work hustle mentality that a lot of us have taken that I'm, I'm guilty of as well. I used to pride myself on only sleeping six hours every single night. And then you come to find out it's really to your detriment. So this is, this is all this to say that if you have a talented workforce, it might be in your company's best interest to decide the good, better, and best talent that you want to retain. 
and to have those proactive conversations with your top talent in order to retain them or shoot or if you're an employee you could shoot your shot and and go after another company that you have seen that's doing really great things out there that you want to be a part of now is the time to seek that opportunity because it's a workers market right now and perhaps for the first time in human history that it's in the workers favor and it doesn't look like this shift is going to transition anytime in the near future back to the company's behavior it's really up to the worker to seek out those opportunities and see it and see if the company that you're with now if they value you enough to retain you or if you'd be better off just going to another opportunity and maybe going after a career path that you didn't think was possible before covid and before this massive shift and and how the, the really the freedom of work and reclaiming our independence ha has really evolved since covid and it's it's sort of a glass half full sort of way to look at it but now that we've we've kind of rounded out that discussion on the future of work possibilities. It's a good time to bring in our first guest who went from a marketing contractor to a full-time employee. Welcome to the show, Patrick McFarland. He's the director of marketing for ITS Logistics. Uh, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Ah, yes, we can hear you now. So it's, uh, it's, this is, I, I feel like over the last year, it, it's sort of like a, a drinking game where you say, can you hear me now? Or can you see me now? Can you share your screen? Oh, you're muted. It's just one of those things. So so welcome in, Patrick. Uh, now, as we alluded to in the intro, what are some of you used to be a contract worker, you used to be a contractor for ITS Logistics, and then you were brought in as a full-time employee. What were some of those big challenges that you faced or, or some of the biggest, I, I guess, expectation shift? that change from being a contractor to being an in-house employee? Oh man, that's a different world for sure. Uh, you know, I, I, much like you, I came from outside the industry. Um, so I, I had picked them up as a freelance customer and they just continued to grow, right? And they they finally got to the point where they're like, hey, we, we have to take our branding seriously. We have to take our marketing seriously. Um, so they just knew it was important. And at that point, it really made sense to bring that in-house. Um, so I, I think it was good timing for me too, because this was a company that was absolutely on the rise. So uh, when I got in, when I did, it was a, it was perfect timing for me. But yeah, I mean, I, I had to start learning about the industry. Um, you had to really get involved um, and 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 want to be there for the company just full time, so you could you could help help them reach their potential. And I think that being in house, I you know I, I just gave a whole spiel on on working remotely and working freelance and all of those things. But there really is a a, a deeper magic that you have whenever you're working inside the office because you can get answers quickly. You can collaborate with other employees much quicker than, than if you're on a remote working basis. Is that what you found, especially as things have evolved during COVID and now, you know, sort of this post weird COVID world that we find ourselves in? Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's a challenge. I mean, our company's facing for sure, but every company across America right now, right? Like how do you transition back from working outside to, to bringing everybody back in and, I think every company is going to kind of have to do what they want to do there, right? I mean, we, I think of nothing else, we learned we have the flexibility for for some of our staff to, to work remotely and effectively and efficiently and still be, you know, part of our company culture and and, and still make an impact. But man, we, I think at the end of the day, we, we can't wait for everyone. Well, I guess we have been for a while back in the, back in the building altogether, just the energy, the, the, being able to communicate at a higher level in person is, is just better, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't 
I like to be able to work remotely and I know that I can now in the future because I never thought I'd be one of those people that could. And I pulled it off for, for almost a year and it was great. But man, I'm, I'm happy to be back in the building and, and with my coworkers <laughs> every day for sure. Yeah, there's definitely a different kind of energy that you can get uh, on an in-person basis. And and uh, as far as your other positions are concerned, you're actually a, you're also a board member for the Transportation Marketing and Sales Association. First, can you tell us a little bit about the the, the TMSA? Because I, I'm I'm somewhat familiar, but I, I'd love to hear your your breakdown of them. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to take a, a quick take a quick step back. So. First year at the company, and I came from outside the industry. Um, so the first year, I just kind of buckled down and I did all the stuff I knew how to do, regardless of mm-hmm. what industry you're in, right? I completely redid the website. I branded the company, um, worked on our internal and external communications, uh, you know, press release, built up our social media channels, get us all more involved in the community, all those things you can do, regardless of what kind of company you're at, right? And I'll never forget, I went into my boss's office uh, that first year, annual review. And he's like, hey, man, good job. First year, knocked out of the park. Now, what do you think? It was a great question. I was like, oh, <laughs> crap, what am I going to do? And uh, I, I, I said, I got to go learn. I have to learn more about the industry. There's so much I don't know. And uh, I literally did a Google search for like transportation and marketing and sales. And and man, there wasn't an actual organization. So I immediately reached out to them, became a member and flew off to their first conference. And uh, I got to tell you, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I... I probably came home with 60 plus business cards. It was mm. so amazing to just be in a in a room full of people that were doing the exact same thing I was doing and uh and, and had been doing it for a lot longer. Like I was the new kid on the block and I had all the questions and, and it, it, as cool as it was, it was also almost eye-opening for me just to see, I mean, in, in a lot of regards, you know, we were in competition. Our companies sometimes were in competition with each other, right? But in this room, um, in this in this this experience, everyone was just so helpful, like talking about best practices and what they learned, um, how how they maybe did something right or maybe how they did something wrong, and and it was uh, it was just a wealth of information for me to take in, and um, it was incredibly valuable. So so yeah, since that point, I've been going. I've been a full time member ever since five plus years now. Uh, I go to all of their conferences. I, I do a bunch of their webinars online. It's uh, been really helpful for me to help me um, do my job better. Absolutely. So yeah, Transportation Marketers Sales Association. Um, in fact, a couple of years ago, I got so involved that they finally were like, uh, hey, do you want to be a board member? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you're, you're bugging and, us too often. Like, please, like, just go ahead and take the reins. <laughs> what were the... Now, you said your first meeting or your first conference that you went to, there were a lot of eye-opening things that that you realized there. What were some of those eye-opening things that that helped you realize that that next path that i that its was going to be on i i i mean i I hate to say i don't have a specific answer because it was it was everything again i was Mm -hmm. so new to the industry just the the terminology um uh, how you hire drivers how you market um to for distribution customers how you might market differently for for a a dedicated contract uh, for your trucking fleet i mean there was there was just so many nuances and so much information Mm -hmm. and again you know this. It's a huge industry. Oh my God, I'm still learning every day, right? Um, so, so yeah, to be in a room with people that have been doing it for years and we're 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 happy to tell me a little bit was was just huge. Yeah, because now, especially in this. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and now now that I've actually been in this for a few years, I feel like I can now kind of help out the other ones. I I see that person that's me in the corner at the next conference, and I can look at them and go, oh, this guy needs help. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because it, 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 that's the thing with, with marketers in this industry. It's such a large industry and there's so many nuances to it that you you feel like you're alone out there on an island where you, you're you not only you're, you're, you're doing a little bit of, you know, recruiting marketing and product marketing and, and service related marketing. And you're doing all of these things that most marketers, they only have one lane and they focus in that one lane. Whereas marketers in logistics, they're really a one person show and they have to handle everything. Did, does it, did you almost find, I guess, a little bit of solace in connecting with the other people that have to handle everything? And, and were there any, I guess, maybe takeaways that, that you guys had? Yeah. And that right there is a great point. And I've seen that time and time again, as I've built up kind of my network in this industry is there are a lot of one one man stops or uh, shops, one person shops in this industry because a lot of the times these logistics companies, trucking companies, distribution companies, um, they they kind of grew up small and they grew up very focused on their industry. And at some point, much like ITS did years ago, um, they kind of take that next that next step and they're like, oh man, we need to we need to start marketing and we need to start doing these other things that we haven't been doing before because we were just doing our our, our you know micro focused on our actual job and. Uh, yeah. And so you do run across a lot of people where it's it's a one person shop and they are asked to do a lot of different things and then they continue to grow. And that's that's the exact position I'm in now is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm so proud of all the things we've been able to do in the last, you know, I've been here for almost six years. But then I also look look around the next corner. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, there's so many things we still don't do. Like there's still so much opportunity for us to to grow and, and, and to get better at and to, and to be able to help out. And, and that's again, that's where an organization like TMSA can really help you, because now I can rely on some of these other people that I've made um, connections with over the last couple of years um, and, and be like, hey, how did you guys do this uh, email marketing campaign for this specific you know, market segment? And um, yeah, that's that's hugely beneficial. Absolutely. Now, now backing it up j- just a little bit, because you mentioned how you came from outside of the industry, j- just like myself, and, and then found yourself within the industry. What were some of the, I guess, learning experiences that you had outside of the industry that you now use within logistics? Um, yeah, I've, much like you, like I said, I mean, heck, I started out as a graphic designer in an advertising agency, right? Um, and I did that for a handful of years and I was in healthcare marketing and then I was in higher education and fundraising, but I had always done freelance uh, consulting work. And I, I can say just that breadth of industry. I mean, you learn, you learn so much. There's so much, there's so much nuance in all these different industries. So you pick up a lot along the way. I mean, I learned so much in healthcare. Oh my gosh. Advertising. I, I, everything I do now is things that I learned in those first five years in advertising. Great agency I worked at. Um, and even in higher education, working at the state level and, and working in education and working on research and, 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 and grant funding and all these different things you do at the at higher education level, it's like I've been able to take that along the way. And I've also worked with a myriad of different types of leadership personalities. And uh, I like to think I've taken like the best piece of each of them along the way. And now I, I use that kind of stuff every day uh, at ITS. <laughs> And so learning from other industries, applying it to logistics, because I think that there's there's definitely still a problem with mainstream wise that it's more of just a, a copycat. Like no one's really out there getting super creative. So I think that that's going to be the next evolution for a lot of logistics companies is taking that's that perfect. next step. There is, we're taking baby steps there. Uh, but but I think that there's definitely still some, some room for improvement. Now, obviously, with, with other industries, it can be a little easier to, quote unquote, prove ROI. What are some ways that you're proving the value of marketing to the executive team? That's that's a 
That's a great question. Isn't that always our challenge in marketing? Right? <laughs> right. We're, we're, as, as when I first got to this company, I was reminded one time that I am a cost center. <laughs> um, and yeah, so you have to you have to improve that investment because sometimes it, it it almost doesn't make sense, right? I mean, uh, we we have a very general content marketing strategy, and when we first started it, honestly, it was it was a tough sell, right? It was, hey, we're gonna we're gonna create some articles and we're gonna tell people how to do things that might not necessarily be specific to us helping them. It's just generally this is what you should do if you're looking to to expand into um, you know ecom or if you want a full omnichannel distribution solution. Um, so to kind of be able to create um, that that industry expert piece where you're really just giving away free information, um, but you're doing it in a smart way, right? You're using SEO, you're 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 making it very valuable for your potential customer that's going to take in that information, and you're also doing all the technical SEO. So Google ranks it high, right? Um, but at the end of the day, when that person reads that content, they might not need your service at that moment. But then they might come back in a couple of months for heck, but they might come back in a year. And then they're going to, oh, yeah, that thing with ITS logistics, that was really good. I'm going to go back and read that again. Oh, you know, I'm going to reach out to their salesperson at the end and just hit them up and ask them a few more questions. And the next thing you know, they're a qualified lead and they're, and they're near your pipeline. And, and then you might be landing them and now you're doing warehouse distribution work for them. So that's definitely been our strategy. And to be able to show that up to, to your point, kind of the C suite, I mean, we have all kinds of reports and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, they care about, they care about new customers, right? They care right. about filling, filling the warehouses, filling the trucks, um, and so so it is. It's 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 hard initially to show that ROI when it's it's a long form uh, sales process that you're you're helping on the front end, right? In the front, the very beginning of the funnel, but but you do have some data, right? You can pull in your Google Analytics and you can say, hey, here's our traffic, here's our time on page, here's our sessions, here's how many forms we got, here's how many calls we got. Um, and then ultimately, you know, that gets in the, in the sales pipeline and then they become qualified and then they they end up actually being your customer. And then you can take that trail back and say, hey, look, this is what we did. And here's what it got us. We got five new customers and, you know, $6 million worth of new, new business in the books. And so de definitely, especially with early on when you're starting a, a new marketing career, maybe a new marketing venture within a company, that that's one of the things that you have to sell them on is that this isn't going to be a quick win. It, it, you're going to have to treat this as a long-term investment play that you're not going to want to cash out here in the next 60 days. And so knowing all of that, uh, what are some of the biggest digital marketing challenges that you see in today's landscape? Man. Um... Competition. I mean, I think I think, and even if you go back before my time here, I think uh, digital marketing was kind of new. It was kind of fresh, especially for the logistics industry. But I think I think the companies have gotten smarter. They they've really embraced it, and now it's it's just competitive. I mean, we all have the same tools, right? We have our Google Search Console, our Google Analytics, and our SEMrush, and our SpyFu, and and we can see where our customers are coming from, and we can see sometimes what our competitors are doing, um, and, and what kind of content they're putting out, how they're ranking, and now they're better than you are. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's it's just it's competitive. Like everyone's getting better, everyone's upping their game. Which honestly, there's a little part of me that likes to see that. I like to see everyone Definitely. Um, embracing those techniques that are going to help your company grow. And now, now I hope we're now we're competing on a level playing field. And now it's just about a service and ultimately about the, the high quality of, of product and service that we can deliver for our customers. So, but yeah, from a marketing perspective, um, it, I think that's it. It's just, it's really competitive right now. And that's, that's, that's exciting for me to see. 
Definitely. I, I completely agree because it's it's one of those things where my my key differentiator just a few years ago was I'm the only agency that's actually out here and that knows logistics. And now there's so many of them. And now I have to figure out and and, and level up and, and keep leveling up and, and, and keep trying to get better. And, and speaking of keep trying uh, of that path to, to keep getting better, you've been with the company for six years now. Um, I say recently, but within the last couple of years, you've actually made your first marketing hire. I believe it was a writer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why hiring a writer was that first next step for you and, and how you see the team evolving in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So let me take a step back again. So I always say when, I mean, before I joined ITS Logistics, they didn't really care about marketing or branding. So they didn't have anybody, right? So when I came in, it was wow, <laughs> there's a lot to do. There's a lot to embrace. There's a lot of things we can improve. Um, and, and that was awesome. That was exciting. But now it's it's evolving. Now, now after being here for almost six years, yeah. And like I said, I, I actually I was in a board meeting, you know, CEO and, and my board level. And, and um, I had to pitch them on the idea of a long-term content marketing strategy. And part of that was like, I want to hire someone. I had, I had used some freelance work. I had used freelance writers. Um, some good, some not so good. Um, at the end of the day, especially when you're talking about S technical SEO combined with kind of your value prop and what makes um, you really good potentially at something, um, that's hard to write, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do it well. And sometimes it's hard to get your subject matter experts um, to give you that information so you can put out that compelling relative content that's going to help a potential customer. Um, and so, yeah, it was hit or miss when I was using freelance people, right? So I, I was like, hey, I want to hire a digital marketing specialist, fancy name. But at the end of the day, they were really going to help me create content. And they were going to help be that in-house writer that I could rely on to generate a consistent amount of content. Because um, not only do you have to have quality, but you also have to do quantity, right? Sure. Uh, so so yeah, that, that, that was initially a little bit of pushback. And I really had to justify it, especially because I, I couldn't prove it yet on paper. I couldn't really show the ROI yet because I hadn't done anything um, a little bit here and there to kind of to, to prove it, the concept a little bit. But uh, but yeah, it was a hard sell initially, but I got it through in, in the two years uh, that I've had that position. It's 100% paid off. And now when I go to ask for that, and that's one into your point, how are we going to expand? Because um, we are in 100% full-on growth mode. So I, I do need to hire additional positions. And, and really right now, I'd say it's in two fields. It's it's technical expertise, someone that really knows the back end of SEO and, and Google, um, as well as maybe someone that even knows like WordPress and can help actually build out the pages and stuff like that as well. Um, and then it's going to be someone also that's that's a good communicator, a good writer, and, and potentially going towards uh, being able to produce some video work as well. We all know awesome. video, video. <laughs> yes, every put everything on video. That that's my motto. But I also I, I strongly encourage any any logistics team out there that if you're looking to make that first hire, a writer, finding a a person who can write the written word will solve so many of your problems down the line because that helps with scripts, videos, podcasts, copy on landing pages, uh, email campaigns, everything. The the heart is with the writers. Um. So so speaking of of <laughs> of, of evolving and and, and you know transitioning your, your marketing campaigns, retention of employees is, is obviously at the, the forefront or it should be at the forefront of everyone's marketing plan and really just business plan overall, keeping those the top talent, whether it's drivers or whether it's employees. How are you guys balancing uh, recruiting messaging versus retention? 
man, there's a lot to unpack there. So first off, I would say one of the great reasons that ITS Logistics has grown so much in the last five plus years that I've been here has been talent acquisition. We have brought in some absolutely brilliant, hardworking people to help build this company up and give us that foundation to to grow and become that next billion dollar you know, third-party logistics company. So we've done an amazing job at that. Um, but man, to your point right now, it is harder than ever. I mean, there's, we all know this, there's a myriad of reasons, but the, the, it's a hot economy. Every company is out there hiring. Every company has a chance to grow, especially in the logistics space. Um, so it, the, 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 the talent that you need to fuel that growth is really hard to find right now. Um, it's so competitive. So to your point, uh, I mean, marketing in the past, it was, you know, branding and it was social media and it was um, helping our, our sales teams and however we could to build out the sales funnels. But man, it really has moved over. And it's like, now, how can you, how can you support HR? How can you help these hiring efforts? Like we, we need drivers. God, we need a million drivers. We need all the drivers we could possibly get right now. So how can we help that driver recruiting team go after and get the best drivers? Our our, our brokerage division in downtown, our integrated national capacity division, I mean, heck, that, that division has only been around for about eight plus years at our company, and they're already ranked like 35th in the country. Um, wow. They are a massive growth. We're hiring 10 people a month for the last year, and we're about to up that again here in the second half of this year. And we're starting to tap the market. It's harder and harder to get those those new kids coming out of college and, and joining our, te- our team because there's just so many other opportunities out there. So, man, we really have to, as marketers in this in this industry right now, we it's all hands on deck, right? Like, how can we all fight and go out and get the best talent to help fuel the growth at our own companies? Yeah, it's 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 a tough thing, but it's much. I, I I would I guess I would leave people with it's much easier to to retain top talent than it is to go out there and recruit it. But you got to do both because you know one doesn't move without the other. Um, so I I think it's it's obvious that you guys are doing a good job of it. If if you're hiring ten plus people every single month and and still continuing to do so, you're not burning through employees like a, a you know certain warehouse logistics two day shipping companies out here are. And, it, and let me take a step back. That's just for our downtown brokerage office. I mean, we're probably hiring 20, 30, 40, 50 people a month right now. But to your point, retention is even harder because there's so many other opportunities for them. I mean, you know this. Every driver out there is probably getting hit up every day with five different ads from a, a ton of different companies. Um, so, I mean, they might just have one bad day. They might love the company, been here for 10 years, and then have one bad day where they're pissed off at their dispatcher. And they're like, well, I got five other people calling me. I'm going to reach out and see what they have to offer me. Um, so, man, you really have to focus on retention and not only for drivers, but across your company. I mean, IT is is hot right now for us, especially uh, sales, uh, carrier reps, all those people. They're, they're in demand all over the place. So to your point, you really have to focus on your own people as well as trying to add and grow. And uh, I think the best way for any company to do that is... Well, first off, it's easy to say. It's another thing to do. But thankfully, that's something that ITS has in spades. And that's just a good, positive company culture. Um, I mean, if you, you want to be a place of choice, you want to be the place that people want to go and work at. You want to be known in the community as a, Oh yeah, I know so-and-so he works over at ITS, loves it there. Great company. You want to be, you want to be out there in the community. You want to be giving back. You want to be doing charitable uh, contributions. You want to be volunteering. You, you want to be the place where people are proud to walk around wearing, wearing the shirt with your logo on it. And I think that's, that's something you need to do right now, especially when it comes to retention in this, in this really competitive market. 
Absolutely. It, it, it speaks to more than just, you know, an email campaign or, or a marketing campaign for recruiting and retention. Um, so, so we got about a minute left, Patrick. What are some quick or long-term wins you can leave the, the, the crowd with? Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, quick wins, I'm not gonna lie. That's tough right now. So I can only say the success that I've had in the last handful of years really has been a, a long, long-term SEO driven content marketing strategy where we want to put out relevant information that's going to be useful for a potential customer in the future so that they're top, we're top of mind with them. And they're like, oh yeah, man, ITS, they put out that article, a couple articles actually, they're really good. You know, I'm going to reach out to them. I got this new, I got this, uh, this new business and I think they might be able to help me. So that really has been uh, something we focused on because at the end of the day, we, we're proud of, of the services we offer and we're proud of the people that we have work here. We think they're some of the best in the industry. And so if I can put out content that shows them in that positive light and, and really hopefully helps somebody out before they even need help so that when they do, we're, we're one of the first people they want to reach out to. Awesome. That That's the ethos that that most companies should be following, uh, especially with, with modern marketing and, and how things are evolving so quickly. All right, all right, Patrick, where can people follow you and ITS? So itsforlogistics.com, uh, please come check out our website. Uh, even if even if you're a competitor, or even if you don't even need our services, just come and check out the website and drop me an email at uh, pmcfarland at itsforlogistics.com and just let me know what you think of our, our marketing efforts. And I'd love to put in a quick plug for the uh, next TMSA conference. Uh, it is in Nashville. I want to say it's like the first week of... Uh, October, yeah. In, yeah, October is, is what I was trying to eye because I was trying to, to, to fit it in. And we're going to see how we, we, we can fit in that, the, you know, adding another conference to the docket. But it looks you like something, I mean, you, you did a good sell on it. You, you got to be there. If you're not there, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to make it happen. I'm going to try. All right. Appreciate your time, Patrick. Don't be a stranger. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. Have right. a good day. Thanks. You too. All right, now for our next interview, I'm super pumped because we, we just had a great chat with Patrick and now we're moving on to our next conversation because this is going to be a, a really fascinating one. And if you are of the drinking nature, you're, you're gonna wanna, if you take a drink every time I say TikTok in this next interview, you're probably gonna be buzzed about seven minutes into this show. Uh, but I found our next guest, Sue Reynolds, owner of Carmine Media through her TikToks, which really shine a light on women in the workplace in leadership roles and in meetings and, and so many fascinating stories. So first, let's welcome in Sue. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really fun that you reached out and asked. I, I mean, I, I could, you, normally it's a little nerve wracking sending the, those email requests, but I've learned some tips from you. And so hopefully it, <laughs> it, it obviously it works since you're here. Uh, but in, in one of your TikToks, you mentioned the assertive backlash where a study of corporate performance reviews out of all those with references to being too assertive, only 24% of those people were men, which I thought was uh, really shining a light on, on how, you know, women, boss babes, whatever you want to call them, um, are sort of shown off in, in these survey results where only 24% mm. were seen as being, 24% uh, of those were men being seen as too assertive. Let's go ahead and play one of your videos where you show how to respond to the assertive backlash. And now I love this one because I, I genuinely believe that you you get more flies with honey. But so in, in, in some of these different, uh, I, I guess, ways to respond in a meeting, whether it's through email or, or, or whether whatever kind of setting you find yourself in the corporate environment, I, I, I believe that I, you know, I, I want to sound nice, but I also don't want to sound weak. 
How common of a problem is it for women to walk this fine line? Oh, it's incredibly common. In fact, if you scroll through my feed, you're going to see me in a silly TikTok video pretending I'm walking a tightrope because that (laughs) illustrates the problem for women who do have to walk that fine line between being assertive and being seen as aggressive. Um, The opposite of that statistic was 76% of women are evaluated as being too assertive, only 24%. And they may be behaving the same way. But women are held to a different standard. And I think if you ask any woman who has run for public office, you're going to, she will give you the stories about how screechy her voice was or how she comes across as harsh and she needs to smile more or be nicer. Uh, That's what people expect of women. And it's hard to get past that backlash. In that video, I was really strategizing ways in which you can warn people in advance that you're about to be assertive, right? And so I gave you some tips there on what to say before you just blurt out your opinion or before you uh, take charge of the meeting. You want to warn people. And that really helps offset the assertive backlash. According to research, they're much less likely to get angry or see you as being harsh if you just warn them you're about to give your opinion. So, so what other ways can I, I, I guess that women can embrace their assertiveness? Is it, is it simply just setting up the, the, the phrase before you say it? Or are there some other strategies, maybe body language or, or, or give us some other examples of how we can be, I guess, more accepting of our assertiveness? Well, first of all, the more often we do it, we normalize. We start to normalize the behavior, right? Um, but also you can use assertive body language and still be kind and warm and have an emphasis on collaboration. Um, a lot of a lot of women tend to, unfortunately, they, they try to make themselves really small at a meeting like this, or they're looking down at their computer like this instead of typing and instead of looking up and making eye contact and engaging with the folks in the meeting. Um, of course, if they're the one that was asked to take the notes, then that's what happens. Uh, they end up taking the notes. But uh, you you can combine a sort of body language with warmth. You don't have to be domineering. You don't have to be aggressive. There's a difference between aggressiveness and assertiveness. Assertiveness is taking responsibility for your own feelings and your own opinions. Aggressiveness is trying to dominate someone else's opinions or thoughts and feelings. And now, now some of these, they, they translate well in in the real world setting, but you know, over the last year with everyone working remotely, uh, you know, different environments like that. And now as we evolve back into some of us going back into the office, how can we translate that, that, you know, that, that I guess the, the digital nature versus the, the in-person nature and, and really, I guess, harnessing the power of being a woman without, you know, going after being too aggressive, like what you say. Well, are you talking about specifically like being on camera like we are now or as we move back into the office and we go back to in person? Well, like uh, maybe like Zoom meetings, Zoom meetings versus an in-person meeting. What what are some of that? I guess maybe the, the, the differences and triggers that, that we should be conscious of that we that we want to convey um, in different settings versus digital versus in real life. Yeah, well. Digital, everything's sort of amplified, right? Uh, Like we can see ourselves on the screen right now, which can be distracting. Um, You want to make sure that you're leaning in and for heaven's sake, speak clearly. 
I've been on so many meetings where, and not just women, but men too, they're mumbling, they're looking down, they're not looking at the camera, they're not making eye contact. Um, It's the same as in real life. We've Mm -hmm. got to, obviously, we're not going to be shaking hands for a while, probably, but we still have to look people in the eye. We still have to stand up straight like your grandmother told you to. And all these sort of old-fashioned, honestly, very simple ideas about how to communicate, but they're simple because they work. Mm -hmm. Um, We Sometimes women are trained to, or they've been socialized to, be more meek and submissive and not take up space. Uh, Give yourself permission to take up space. You are allowed to sit at the table. You can share your ideas in the meeting. You can look people in the eye. And that helps normalize the assertiveness while we wait for society to catch up with us. Now, one thing that I learned years ago is when you're walking into a a meeting, when you're walking into the boardroom, where you sit in the position relative to the head of the table matters. And so ever since I heard that, I try to sit, if I'm not leading the meeting, I try to sit as close to the head of the table as possible. Is is that still a real thing? Or is there other, any sort of in-person meeting faux pas that, that women tend to do more than men? I think you make an excellent point there. And yes, you're right. There's actually studies on that where where you sit at the table does, there's sort of a power hierarchy around it, right? So the person leading the meeting is going to have the most eyeballs on him or her. But if you're sitting right next to that person, you're going to get more visibility from the rest of the folks at the meeting. And it also shows sort of a boldness in your approach to walk in and sit down right next to the person who's about to lead instead of sitting maybe way at the other end of the table or even taking the chair and putting it against the wall, which I've seen um, when there's, if there's not room for you at the table, make room, pull the chair up, make sure that you have a seat at the table. Um, Cause that does matter. If you're sitting along the wall, you're functioning more as an audience and not as a participant. Oh, I love that. That That's a great tip because I've definitely found myself there, not necessarily on purpose, but if you just walk into a meeting and maybe all the chairs are taken and it's just, oh, I'll just sit over here, but you're signaling that you're not part of the conversation. You're just an audience member. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Um, so say, say you are a, a woman in middle management position and you want to work your way up to the C-suite. What are some differences between those two roles and and how can we bridge that gap to make that promotion uh, much more of a reality? That's a great question. And it's one actually that I help some of my coaching clients with because um, they're looking to move from a management role into at least director or like you're saying, C-suite. Um, and there are big differences in leadership between those two roles. So you're moving really from managing processes to managing people when you move into a C-suite. It's all about, at that point, it's all about your employee growth and retention. Like you're, just like you're um, the person on, on the call just before I had, before me, employee retention is so important right now. Um, you've got to really focus on leadership development and give up processes and move into managing people. Um, so when you're trying to do that as a manager, you need to demonstrate that you can do that. You need to you need to be able to practice leadership whenever you can. If there's an opportunity to lead a project, project if there's an opportunity to present um, in your in your company, show off that leadership skill that you have um, and that you can manage a team. Take leadership of your group projects. 
things of that nature, uh, because you're switching from processes to people. And a, a lot of folks struggle when they do get into a management role, a letting go of the processes and trusting that your employees are are managing that, that themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of folks that try to do all of it and they end up working, you know, 80 hours a week and then their team feels underutilized. So it's about delegation. It's about team leadership development. It's about showing your plan for growing the people that report up to you and not the processes. I love that because it, it definitely it's a, it's a totally different skill set for managing people versus managing uh, versus managing process. Mm-hmm. And and you, you brought up another really good point is is managing the expectation of of having to do it all and and being able to delegate because I think that that is a also another pressure that's been put on women where the majority of our human existence we've served in one role and really over the last say less than hundred years we've sort of evolved into the the career mode and but we still want both how can we balance the the desire to wanting a career to i guess the the historically traditional role that that we've been in because there's sort of that guilt factor right that you, you want to have it all but you really can't have it all well you can have some of it all but you know there's an economic uh theory called uh, opportunity cost right so an opportunity cost affects all of our decisions every day um, if you if you spend time doing this thing, then you can't spend time doing this thing. The cost is the opportunity. So whichever opportunity you take, you're giving up an opportunity in some other area of your life to focus on the opportunity at hand. And I think that we can have some of it all. Um, but we know with p- parents, with kids at home, I feel so sorry for them over this last year uh, trying to manage small school-aged children and their, their education plus their own job, I, I can imagine that that would be extremely difficult and has probably disrupted any work-life balance that they may have had prior to that. Um, I think that we can have some of it all, but we've got to learn how to say no to some projects or when we're getting, when we're overtaxed or we're going to get burnout. out. And you hear that a lot but it's very hard for women to say no, especially when we know we're capable of doing the things that people are asking us to do, but it becomes a time issue. Is that something that you want to spend your time doing? Because there's going to be always an opportunity cost when you say yes to this, then something else doesn't get done. And that probably brings up your, your earlier point too, to, to piggyback off that, that the importance of delegating in to, to other people that, that can hopefully help you out and then make that pathway to uh, easing those expectations of we got to have it all. And if we don't have it all, then we're you know just a failure in multiple ways, in, in, in multiple areas of our life, which we're obviously trying to avoid. Now, we talked earlier in the show about the great resignation and seeing more and more people leaving their jobs. And one of your TikToks, you said that men will apply to a job with only 60% of the listed skills, while women will only apply if they meet 100% of the skill set. Why do you think that this is the case? And how do you see this affecting the job market that we find ourselves in now? Yeah, that's a fascinating statistic, isn't it? That came out of a Hewlett-Packard study. Um, And when I came across it, I thought it was a perfect content for a video because I think so many women feel much more pressure to be perfect. We've got to be the best everywhere. We've got to be the perfect Pinterest mom, uh, the perfect employee, 
the perfect wife. Our house needs to look like a pottery barn catalog. Um, and, and if we fall short of any of those things, we feel guilty. We feel like we're not living up to society's expectations. So I find myself coaching a lot of my clients around that perfectionism. I struggle with it. I, I will be the first to admit that I struggle with perfectionism. Um, and I think that the reason I'm bringing that up is that that sort of answers the, oh, I'm not going to apply for this job because there's a few of the skill sets listed on there that I don't have yet. Um, so I'm not qualified for it unless I can do 100% of the job. Um, and I think that we're shorting ourselves. We're missing out on opportunities because of that mindset. I've one of my one of my bosses years ago, and now I tell my my team members this too. If you can do a job right out of the gate, it's probably too easy for you. If you're already capable of doing everything on that job uh, description, you're going to walk in and already be maybe overqualified. You want a job that's going to help you grow a new skill set and get outside your comfort zone, which is uncomfortable at first. But as you learn the new skills, then now you've grown as a person and as a leader. So if you're only applying for jobs where you can do 100% of it already, you're not, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to grow. And I think that men are just better at that than we are. They see, oh, I can do 60% of it. Heck, I'm going to apply. And uh, they're not as, they're, they're more brazen about, I think, just saying, well, I'll learn it. I'll figure it out. And we have such a perfectionist mindset. And remember, I'm speaking in gen generalities. Sure. Not all women do all these things. Uh, there's plenty of women who will apply for a job with 60%. But the statistics are that many don't. Um, and I, I think it has to do with that perfectionism again and the having it all that you're talking about, um, thinking that we have to have it all. Um, and therefore, we maybe sell ourselves short. Hmm. I love that. So the takeaway is to apply for the damn job, even if you yes. think you're not qualified for it. You now, have now what? Some, of the, some of the qualifications and you are confident that you can learn the rest. You've got to have faith in yourself that you can learn these things and you will get you will spend the time to learn them. It's something that you owe yourself. I, I look at our skill set as a toolbox, right? And you want to keep putting tools in that toolbox that you didn't have before. And that's an opportunity to do that. I love that. Now, now, what role, I guess, do, do men, if any, what role do they play in, in helping to, to normalize women in, in leadership positions? You know, that's so important because men, as we know, statistically hold most of the leadership roles uh, through, throughout the world. And uh, I think that men can actively seek and show support for the ideas and the leadership of women. If you're in a position of leadership, make sure you're delegating important project opportunities to the women who report up to you. Um, they're not there to take notes and everyone else shares their ideas. I mean, obviously someone has to take notes, um, but share that, share that responsibility. Don't always just delegate it to the female. Um, give women an opportunity to speak at the table actively seek out their ideas and their uh, their leadership on projects. Um, it helps, and it helps if you're a woman in, in a role like that too, show respect for the ideas of other women and hold them up as well. We've got we've to have each other's backs here and support each other too. 
Absolutely. We are more than just the, the potluck organizers in the <laughs> office. So, so give us more things. More another, you, know, you bring up a great point. Um, some of the articles I've read, and even in my leadership degree studies, um, it was, they're saying, stop feeding people. It, you know, if you're bringing, you're always the one that brings in the cupcakes in the morning. Uh, well, that's great. And people love it and they'll love you for it. You will gain lots of friends, but it's not a way to gain uh, respect or to show authority, really. Um, so you got to balance that with your leadership aspirations. Absolutely. I, I was the one that was tasked early on in my career of organizing the potluck. So it was a little, that was a little personal one for me, <laughs> but eventually I mean, we evolved. Should, we should all get a turn at that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm, I, I'm someone who I get gutted when I receive criticism on, on anything that I, I work on, even though I always want to get better. How, what are, what are some of the best ways to handle getting that negative feedback and turn it into something positive? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So many women will be so incredibly hard on themselves when they have criticism. And yet if someone praises you, it do, they, we don't let it make ourselves feel good for very long. We right. usually, you're not the other. Someone gives you a compliment and you're like, oh, it was nothing. Oh, it's, I had a great team. You know, we, we, we don't take compliments very well. Um, but we do take criticism very well, meaning that we hold on to it and maybe ruminate over it longer than we should. Um, and if you trust the person or, you know, if you have respect for the person who's criticizing you, the first thing you want to do is resist getting defensive. Mm -hmm. um, take a step back and ask yourself, is there any truth to this criticism? And you know what? If there is, be thankful that you received it because now you have an opportunity to improve yourself, more tools in your toolbox, like we were talking about, um, admit to yourself that they they maybe are onto something and figure out a way to fix it and then share that with them. Let them know, you know, I thought about what you said and I do see some truth in it and I really appreciate that you gave me the opportunity to improve on this. You will gain their respect um, and they will they will fight for you uh, later on, you're you're going to gain authority and respect from them. Love that. So so many great gems in, in this chat. Sue, where can people follow your work? Find your your TikTok videos that we've been showing through that throughout the show. Where where can people follow more of your work? Oh yeah, well um, I'm really active on TikTok. Uh, you can find me at Carmine Media, which is the name of the media company that I own. Um, I've been running that for about almost 10 years or a little bit more than 10 years now. They can find me at Carmine Media everywhere but Twitter. I'm on, I'm Sue Reynolds on Twitter. You can tell how long I've been on Twitter because <laughs> I actually was able to use my name. Nobody had it. So I think I signed up within a year of uh, Twitter just launching. So I got lucky there. But everywhere else, I'm Carmine Media, including the web. Um, I've got my Leadership for Women series. That's a, a web, web a series of webinars that have expanded uh, on these topics um, so that you can actually watch those at your leisure and uh, learn some additional leadership skills for women. And then I, I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching for uh, you know anyone that thinks that they need a one-on-one -on -one coach for leadership and to sort of help with their assertiveness and their personal growth. That's amazing. You, you were you were great to chat with today. I highly recommend everybody to go out there and, and follow Sue. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really been a pleasure talking to you.
Absolutely. Likewise, you as well. I'm looking forward to following more of your work. All right. Well, that about does that about does it for for this show. Now, one more one quick thing that I did want to leave you with, and I'm sorry that I have to do this to you after we just had two great, really conversations. Um, but I did want to leave you with this: uh, the the ladies and gentlemen is a hot dog a sandwich question because it finally has been decided a hot dog is a sandwich. It's actually pretty disgusting looking. It looks like bread in that photo. So I'm sorry you have to experience this, but <laughs> you can catch the next episode of Cyberly next Thursday at 2 p.m. I'm your host, Blythe Bremley, and thank you for tuning in.